Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and today's topic is the contested waters of the South China Sea, an issue that has loomed large in relations between China and various Southeast Asian countries for well over a decade. Indonesia has long described itself as a non-claimant in the South China Sea, by which it means it does not have competing claims over geographic features like islands and reefs of the sort that have spurred periodic confrontations between other nations such as the Philippines and China, for example. But Indonesia and China do make competing claims over the right to exploit maritime resources in the waters around Indonesia's Natuna Islands, northwest of Borneo. Indonesia claims these waters as its exclusive economic zone under the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, meaning it claims exclusive rights to explore and exploit maritime resources there. By contrast, China says the waters are its traditional fishing grounds, a concept not recognised under the UN Convention. This dispute has come to a head over the past month, as Indonesian Navy vessels have twice seized Chinese fishing boats in the area Indonesia claims as its exclusive economic zone, in one case firing upon the Chinese boat as well. In each case, the Chinese Coast Guard has been in the vicinity. In March, the Chinese Coast Guard in fact prevented Indonesia from seizing a third Chinese fishing boat, ramming the boat to stop it being towed by an Indonesian fisheries patrol vessel. This sequence of events culminated in Indonesian President Joko Widodo convening a symbolic meeting with several of his ministers aboard a warship stationed off the Natuna Islands on 23 June, complete with numerous photo ops of the president standing by the ship's weapons. The seizures have also spurred intense debate within Indonesia about the best way to manage this dispute in the context of broader Indonesia-China relations. To discuss these incidents and the broader implications of the South China Sea conflict for Indonesia, I'm joined by Dr. Makmur Kaliat from the International Relations Department at the University of Indonesia, who also served as an advisor to the Cabinet Secretary in the Jokowi administration until August 2015. In 2014 also, as reported by Tempo magazine, Dr. Kaliat was a member of the team of 11 academics who advised PDIP on its choice of Jokowi as the party's presidential candidate. I spoke to Dr. Kaliat in Jakarta just prior to Jokowi's trip to the Natunas. Pak Makmur, thanks for joining us today on Talking Indonesia. Thank you also for giving me opportunity to talk to you today. I first asked whether the uptick in seizures of Chinese fishing boats in recent months indicated that more Chinese vessels were entering the area or that Indonesian authorities were conducting more active enforcement. First of all, we have to underline the fact that sea area in the Natuna Island is abundant in fishery resources. So I think it is no wonder that many fishery, many fishing vessels are interested in tapping that, that resources. And the second reason is, I think we have not only problem with uh, China's fishing vessel, we have also problem with Vietnamese fishing vessel and also from the Philippines. I think two days ago we have uh, also catch uh, illegal fishing vessel from the Philippines and Vietnam. But maybe because international media have uh, more cover on the uh, fishing vessel of China, so we don't have uh, what we call adequate attention to the fishing vessel from Vietnam and the Philippines. 
And the third reason I think is uh, related to the government policy. I think the current government has a specific policy on uh, uh, on uh, maritime, and we have put emphasis on how to manage our sea resources to support our uh, welfare. So I think there is no wonder that we have uh, given more attention to the to our maritime boundaries, to our our territorial uh, sovereignty. Dr. Kliad is correct in pointing out that Indonesian authorities have seized many more Southeast Asian flag fishing boats than Chinese boats. According to Fisheries Ministry figures, Indonesia seized 57 fishing boats suspected of illegal fishing around the Natunas in the year to 21 June, of which 49 came from Vietnam, which has yet to demarcate its own exclusive economic zone boundary with Indonesia around the Natunas. In the case of the Chinese vessels, Dr. Kliat said that the important thing was for Indonesia to frame the problem as a fisheries issue rather than a matter of sovereignty. We don't have a problem with China insofar as a sovereign issue is concerned. We have a problem with, with how to deal with the fishery resources as China has uh, raised the issue of traditional fishing ground. In my understanding, that term, traditional fishing ground, is not known in the concept of uh, international law, in the concept of UNCLOS, what we know is traditional fishing right. So, in my understanding also, fishing right is not sovereign right. So, fishing right is something that we can negotiate. Mm. In the context of fishing rights, traditional fishing right, I think we have uh, done before with Australia. So, uh, in my understanding, traditional fishing right is recognized under the UNCLOS. But the thing is, we need to make a bilateral arrangement. It should be concluded under bilateral agreement. And the second thing is that fishing, uh, uh, traditional fishing right is uh, very limited in a time frame. Uh, it cannot be unlimited. So we need to differentiate two things. One is a sovereign issue. The second thing is a fishery issue. So you're saying Indonesia cannot negotiate on sovereign issue, yeah. Uh, but on fishing issue? Yeah, we, we, we can talk about that. How, how. So when we talk about fishing issue, fishery issues, so we need to approach that from the legal perspective. So not from what we call it from the uh, by building our muscle. I mean, it's an interesting point because I guess the approach of Indonesia's foreign ministry has been to say repeatedly that it has no overlapping claim on its exclusive economic zone with China. But just in the last few days, we've seen China's foreign ministry say a number of times that it has, that the incident, for instance, uh, when Indonesia most recently seized a vessel took place in Chinese fishermen's traditional fishing grounds and where there are overlapping claims for maritime rights and interests. So this seems to be a claim by China yeah. that, there, it, that there is an overlap of, I guess, waters or, yeah. or territory. So does this fall within what you're saying Indonesia can negotiate on? Yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, the, the spokesperson of the president has released a statement that uh, we have to maintain our territorial sovereignty. Sure. Uh, and we don't have... Uh, problem insofar as a maritime boundary is concerned with China mm -hmm. and Natuna Island is part of our territory. So 
By saying this, I think the government is in is is trying to send a signal to the Chinese government that actually this issue should not be understood as a sovereignty issues because sovereignty is non-negotiable. Uh, so the point then is, yeah. we don't have we don't recognize the term traditional fishing ground. That term is unknown yeah. in the UNCLOS. So I think this has been uh, sent also to the Chinese authority that we need to make a clarification. What do they mean mm. by the term? Because it is not recognized under the UNCLOS. So, I mean, you mentioned a statement like the presidential spokesperson. I think he said sovereignty is non-negotiable and must be defended. Yeah. Um, as that sending a message to China, do you think China is hearing that message that Indonesia is sending? So, I think by sending that signal, then we, we, we already find our, our disagreement. Mm. So, uh, the point of disagreement is uh, important in order to go to the next step. Mm. So by saying that we don't know, we, we don't recognize the term, and you said this term is is a legal base of China, then we can see what is what is where could we find a, a meeting point. Because I mean, we're seeing some commentators say that the Indonesian government should move away from its approach of saying there are no overlapping claims with China on the EEZ, yeah. and say quite openly that there is an overlapping claim, and that it's incorrect. Do you see any benefit to Indonesia in moving away from sort of denying that there is an overlapping claim with China? Let me tell you one point. In my observation, South China Sea issue is not the only issue in Sino-Indonesia relationship. So we need to consider another strategic aspect. So by saying that, what I am trying to say is that let us not put everything under the issue of South China Sea. So we, we also try to say to convey that signal to China. This is not the this is not what they call the life and death issue between China and Indonesia. We have a multi-dimension issue between China and uh, Indonesia. We have a close cooperation in a trade, we have a close cooperation in a investment, we have also a number of companies here, we have exported a lot of product from Indonesia to China. So we need to consider this. Yeah. So not one side, not one single issue. In between Indonesia's seizure of Chinese fishing boats in May and June, a foreign minister's summit between China and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, ended in discord on 14 June. The 10 ASEAN countries had formulated a statement critical of China over the South China Sea, but in a grouping that requires unanimity to act, could not reach consensus to release the statement. Where most commentators saw this outcome as the result of Chinese pressure on Laos and Cambodia, drawing into question ASEAN's ability to remain united and constrain Chinese behaviour in the South China Sea, Dr Kaliat instead saw the non-issuance as caution on the part of the ASEAN countries, while an arbitration case the Philippines has brought against China is ongoing. More on that in a moment. Nevertheless, I asked Dr. Kalia whether the Quinming meeting outcome bore implications for the viability of an ASEAN-led approach to resolving conflict in the South China Sea. We need to convince China that ASEAN is a strategically very important to the country. Mm. 
hmm. because we have a number of relationship before we have ASEAN plus one we have a ASEAN plus three mechanism we have East Asia summit so this kind of institutional arrangement is very useful for China it is only through ASEAN that China can talk and can sit together with the entire countries in the group in the in the, in the region so in my understanding is that don't neglect ASEAN the issue of the peaceful rise of China can be tested when China deal with with ASEAN. So let us use the regional framework that has been evolved by China and ASEAN. Don't neglect the concern of ASEAN with regard to the South China issue. So don't try to deal the issue bilaterally. But I mean, that's exactly what China has tried to do. Yeah, they, they yeah. Decide. we yeah. have to convince them. We have to convince them. ASEAN is an asset not only for ASEAN countries, but also for China. Okay. And how would you convince China of the value of ASEAN? So, if China neglects ASEAN, then people say that the rise of China is not really peaceful. People can use this case. Huh, see, China has risen by neglecting ASEAN. Dr. Kaliat explained that a complication in convincing China to work through ASEAN is that the court hearing and arbitration case brought by the Philippines against China has stated that ASEAN's mechanisms to deal with the South China Sea are non-binding political arrangements and not a legal framework. So now, I think we are, the situation is more complicated because at the same time, ASEAN is trying to promote regional framework and China has also stated in their document that this issue is being resolved through regional mechanism, but at the same time, permanent co-arbitration does not recognize regional mechanism as a legal framework to bind all countries in the region. So this is a challenge for the assigned countries. So in my understanding, there is an urgent need to make regional mechanism something like a code of conduct and DOC to be recognized as legal framework at the international community. But I mean, this code of conduct has been under negotiation for many, many years. Yes, without yes, really yes, any yes. Progress. Yes, that is the challenge for ASEAN. Yeah. So actually, the problem with ASEAN is that we have uh, what we call it a high council mechanism within the ASEAN, but that mechanism never become effective because no one, no country, has brought the case to the mechanism. Yeah. So the challenge for ASEAN, how could we convince others outside ASEAN countries that we have regional mechanism, but actually, in fact, we never use that mechanism when we have a problem yeah. inside the ASEAN. The arbitration that Dr. Kliat refers to is a case brought by the Philippines in 2013 to the Permanent Court of Arbitration an intergovernmental organisation in The Hague for arbitration and dispute resolution between states. In the case, the Philippines seeks to have claims based on so-called historic rights declared invalid. The Philippines here make specific reference to the nine-dash line that, that China draws on maps, enclosing much of the South China Sea. The idea of the case is to limit China's claims to the maritime entitlements set out under the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, or UNCLOS. 
To this end, the Philippines has also asked the court to rule on whether the various maritime features that China claims are islands, which can generate an exclusive economic zone, or in fact are lesser maritime features which cannot. China has refused to participate in the arbitration and has given strong signals that it will disregard the court's decision, with the court now having announced that it will hand down its decision on 12 July. Dr. Kliat outlined Indonesia's position on the Philippines' decision to refer its dispute with China to arbitration. Indonesia has taken the view, if I'm not mistaken, mm. has taken the view that because we are party to the to the inquest mm. and the permanent court of arbitration is one of the mechanism, legal mechanism that has been recommended by UNCLOS mm. to solve maritime issue that we are strongly committed to this process. Mm. We have to respect whatever decision or verdict will be made by PCA mm. as a member of a UNCLOS. Mm. I think we have to. So, I mean, if you're saying that Indonesia has an interest in the PCA's verdict being respected, mm -hmm. I think we've seen pretty strong signals from China that it doesn't intend to respect that verdict. Uh, for instance, the Chinese ambassador wrote in the Jakarta Post here, uh, basically describing uh, the arbitration process as something that ruling on sovereignty was outside its jurisdiction and that this was not an appropriate process to, to deal with a South China Sea dispute. Is this something that Indonesia, when the decision is handed down, needs to be making a public statement about the Permanent Court of Arbitration ruling, either by itself or together with the other ASEAN countries? Yeah, my personal view is that we have to make a, to make a statement, we have to release a statement. Even in my understanding, in my view, we can make a statement before PCA made the ruling. Because for the simple reason, to show to the public that we are autonomous in making our decision. And so that should be a statement that Indonesia makes individually or...? We can make individually, we can make under the ASEAN, uh, what do you call it, under ASEAN institution. I think both are very important statements. I'm not talking about, about, about the substance of the statement, but it can show the people, it can show people that we have independence okay. in making our foreign policy. Dr. Kaliat then set out three possible scenarios for the permanent court of arbitration decision. The first scenario is all uh, requests by the Philippines will be endorsed, will be approved by PCA. This is the first scenario. And the China, of course, will not accept the decision. The second scenario is that some of the uh, requests will be approved, but some will not be approved. So in this case, then there is a possibility to de-escalate the situation. The third scenario is the Philippines suddenly say that we stop our legal process in the PCA. I don't know whether it, it can be. So, my expectation is the second one. That yeah. there will be some claims accepted. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. We need to underline the fact that China also has participated in the PCA. I think if I'm not mistaken, if you look at to the, the information made by PCA through the internet I accessed a few weeks ago, that actually China in the past has also brought the case to the PCA with regard to the issue of station radio at all with the United States. And that case was accepted by PCA and China win the case.
So I think we need to convince China also that you have taken advantage also with legal mechanism here yeah. made through the PCA. So I think uh, we still have a what you call a wide uh, opportunity to to promote the legal process. So you see a PCA ruling that accepted some of the Philippines' claims, but not all of them. Yeah, could actually contribute to a de-escalation of tensions. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So we 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 really expecting that the CC now ruling by by PCN will, will not bring a detrimental impact to the to okay. the stability okay. here in the region. Okay. I mean, what if it did accept all of the Philippines' claims? What effect do you think that would have on the situation in the South China Sea? I think the situation will be will be more volatile. But you see that not as the most likely. No, not not the most. In the lead up to this permanent court of arbitration ruling. Indonesia's Coordinating Minister for Political, Legal and Security Affairs, Luhut Panjayatan, told the press in mid-June that Jokowi had asked him to establish a coordinated position among ministers on the South China Sea, so that their answers didn't go off in different directions. Dr Kaliat said it was natural that Luhut play a coordinating role, given the different interests at stake. So let us take a sample from the perspective of Ministry of Fishery Resources. I think uh, it is natural that they are concerned with illegal fishing. But there is a kind of nitty-gritty if we see the ca this case from the international law perspective. So the nitty-gritty, the new law, the, the knowledge of that nitty-gritty is not with the Ministry of Fishery. Yeah. It is with the Ministry, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yeah. So knowledge resources need to be to be coordinated with the fishery resources of the Ministry of Fishery. So it is not, not, not a very simple issue. We also uh, have an interest in attracting investment from China. We also have interest in exporting our product to China. At the same time, we have to realize also that strategic interest of the United States, Japan, and extra-regional Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So we need to strike a balance between all of this. Because, I mean, if we go back to the first attempted seizure of a fishing vessel back in March, uh, the fisheries minister, Suzy Pudiastuti, mm -hmm. called a press conference, you know, uh, sort of spoke with quite strong language. <laughs> Does that mean that when Susie is making a, a press statement like that, she's not actually representing the whole of the Indonesian government per se? When, when can we take a statement from a minister to represent a coordinated Indonesian government position? I think sometimes it happened that media and also the ministry mm -hmm. have taken initiative to make a conference. So it is because under their responsibility. Let us take a sample about fishery resources. It is the job of the Ministry of Fishery Resources to protect the fishery resources of Indonesia. Mm -hmm. But when we bring the case to the strategic level, then we need also to consider other stakeholders. So that is why the view of uh, made by Ibu Susi, for instance, should not be understood as the entire view of the Indonesian government with regard to the if we bring that case to the strategic level. I mean, when you look at the government statements on this latest seizure of a Chinese fishing vessel on, I think, the 18th of June, yeah. um, I think we've seen the Vice President, Yusuf Kala, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh -huh. we've seen uh, the Foreign Minister, Retno Masudi, brief the Parliament on yeah. the case, uh, Lord Panjaya uh -huh. has been in the media, Suzy Pudyastuti on Twitter has praised the actions of the military. Is this already reflecting that sort of coordinated position, or is this still an example of no one really giving the overall coordinated... No, I think we, we have a freedom of expression here. Yeah. We no longer live under the authoritarian regime like Sohar yeah. or Bipo. Yeah. So I think yeah. it is natural. 
So if the media ask someone there, but in my observation, of course we need to have, I mean the government need to have a, what do I call it, single narrative. Okay. So it is like single document that all ministry can refer to that document. And is that in place yet or that's still something for... I don't know, but no, no. we help we have it soon. You talked about Indonesia needs a single narrative that needs to be able to place the Natuna and South China Sea mm -hmm. incidents in terms of its broader interests. To what extent are Indonesia's interests in the Natunas and the South China Sea the same or at least compatible with, with China's interests there? Both China and Indonesia, I think, have taken a lot of advantage for the last 10 years. China has grown economically because of the stability in the region. Same thing happened to Indonesia. We have grown economically because the region is stable. So I think we need to convince both countries. So these areas, so China Sea, should be peaceful and stable. And there should be a freedom of navigation there. We need to convince China that don't try to put the area under your national territory. It should be open for freedom of navigation. That is my position. When a United States warship conducted a freedom of navigation operation in the Spratly Islands in October last year, Luhut Panjaitan criticised the operation, saying Indonesia did not like any power projection. Given Indonesia's interest in an open South China Sea that Dr. Kaliat outlines, could there though be circumstances in the future where Indonesia would in fact support freedom of navigation operations conducted by the US or other nations? I, I am not fully uh, very knowledgeable about that term, mm -hmm. but in my understanding that the sea, South China Sea, is, I mean, is connecting Southeast Asia and China and also Japan. Yeah. And the sea also is strategically important to the United States. So that sea should be not put under the control of any country. So, by saying this, I would like also to say that if United States would like to what to conduct peaceful military operation, then it should not be seen by other country that United States is trying to control that area. So, China should not try to dominate this area. United States also should not try to control this maritime area. So that is my point. That's where Indonesia's interest lies in, in no one power controlling yes. that maritime yes. area. Yes, it, it is often for extra-regional power, but mm. please, we are expecting that no one try to control this area. Dr. Kaliat also rejected the idea that Indonesia can use the United States to balance China. We need to realize that China and United States has stronger relationship compared to Indonesia and United States relationship and compared to Indonesia and China relationship. So don't think too naive that we can use United States peace with China because they have their own interests. So what is more important for us is we have to become independent and try to see the opportunity between China and the United States. Don't try to, what we call it here, is like bandwagoning or balancing. We need to see 
what kind of interest, what kind of opportunity we can explore from the dynamic relationship between the United States and China. Specifically on Indonesia's relations with China, Dr. Kalia downplayed the long-term effect of the South China Sea disputes. Our relationship bilaterally with China is also shaped by objective condition. So, what I mean by objective condition is that it is not based on uh, temporary issues like South China Sea, fisheries. We have objective condition. Let us take example. Geographically, China will always our neighbor. Okay? Investment from China, whether we like it or not, has become bigger and bigger. And China has become an engine of growth for Asia. Yeah. So this is objective condition. We need to consider that. So don't try to understand our bilateral relationship with China by focusing only on the territorial dispute in the South China Sea. So are you saying, irrespective of what happens with the South China Sea and the Tuna, that Indonesia-China relations are going to strengthen? Yeah, I think it, it will continuously strengthen. And in my understanding also that we don't live in a Cold War era. So we have a lot of uh, dimensions of our bilateral relationship with, with China. In closing, Dr. Kliat stressed though that closer ties with China did not mean a more distant relationship with the United States. What we need to do in the future is let us have a closer relationship with China and also let us to have a closer relationship with the United States also. So if China has become stronger, it is natural and it is a normal that China will have a stronger capability in terms of military resources. So what we need to do is, we need to have institutional arrangement, how to accommodate the growing power of China and how to accommodate the power of the United States. So we need to have that kind of uh, institutional arrangement. Don't, don't look at this uh, as a what you call menacing threat. In my observation, I am more afraid if China become unstable. Then if they become increasingly yeah, powerful. Yeah. yeah. And you know, there is a people there, 1.3 billion, mm -hmm. and we have to thank China's government that can manage that large people, okay? Okay. large number of people. So it is better to expect China become a stable country because otherwise then that problem will also affect us negatively. Uh, Pak Mahmur, there's a lot more I could ask you about this, but I'm afraid we're well and clearly out of time, so thank you. Thank so you very much, much also. Okay. That was Dr. Mahmur Kaliat from the International Relations Department at the University of Indonesia, who is also a former advisor to the Cabinet Secretary and is reported by Tempo magazine, a member of the team of 11 academics that advise PDIP on its presidential candidate. Today's podcast marks one year of Talking Indonesia. A big thanks from me and from my co-host Ken Satyawan to all of our guests and our listeners. And if you subscribe by iTunes, please do take the time to review or rate the podcast there, or leave us a comment at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, where the entire archive is available. My co-host Ken Satyawan will return with the next instalment of Talking Indonesia on 14 July. Until then, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.